Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Rich Sorkin, the CEO and co-founder of Jupiter Intelligence. Jupiter provides data analytics to help governments, corporations, and society manage risks from climate change, natural disasters, and sea level rise. Led by veterans of Fortune 100 companies, machine learning and satellite pioneers, a Nobel Prize winner, and scientists from NOAA and the National Science Foundation, the firm offers services to predict weather risks from one hour to 50 years into the future. The company was founded in 2017 and has raised over $30 million in funding to date over three rounds through a mix of strategic investors, venture firms, and high net worth individuals. I was excited for this episode because while, of course, it's important to reduce our emissions, and it's also important to remove carbon from the atmosphere, adaptation and resiliency are hugely important topics that don't get enough attention, mind share, or resource. It's great to hear what Jupiter is doing in this area and learn more not only about Jupiter and their role, but also about the topic of adaptation and resiliency in general, where we are, where we need to be, and how to get there. Rich Sorkin, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you. A big fan of the podcast. Thank you. Well, big fan of Jupiter. And I don't know if I'm supposed to admit this, but this is our second attempt to do a painful and frustrating technical glitch to us both. Well, that's between you and your audience. <laughs> but yeah, so glad to have you here and excited to dig in because adaptation, resiliency, I mean, these are important issues that don't get enough airtime and one way or another are going to get more in the months and years to come. And I'm glad to hear you guys focused on this area and kind of pioneering and excited to dig in and learn a lot more about it. Thanks very much. And it's been a super exciting three years to get to this point. Is that all it's been? Three years? Man, you've made a lot of progress in those three years. We have, and the world's evolved quite a bit in the last three years as well. So what is Jupiter? First of all, do I call it Jupiter or Jupiter Intelligence? What's the official name? According to the lawyers, it's Jupiter Intelligence, Inc. But that was just because we couldn't get the trademark on Jupiter as a standalone, at least not yet. And generally, everyone refers to us as Jupiter. Okay, well, what's Jupiter? So Jupiter is one of the world leaders, if not the world leader, in predicting the risk and impact from severe weather and climate change and the return on investment and implications of resiliency investments. So basically, it is forward-looking prediction to help with planning? Yeah, we work in three sectors, big asset owners like power companies, financial services like mortgages, insurance, asset management, mm -hmm. and then the public sector. And essentially, each one of those sectors and even subsectors uses us a little bit differently, but we provide them a forward-looking view of the risks to their region or assets, factoring in climate change and in terms that are relevant to their business or municipal government. So how did Jupiter come about? What's the origin story? So I personally have been very interested in climate change for quite some time. From a professional perspective, I'm more of an analytics person in general across large 
corporate enterprises. But in 2015, I was doing some work around aerial methane detection for another company that I helped start and thinking about climate change. And keep in mind that this was just before the U.S. 20, 2016 election. And I was just sort of looking at what was going on with climate change and the dialogue around that. And it occurred to me that almost everyone was focused on this question of emissions and bending the emissions path and reducing climate change. And that is, of course, an extraordinarily important area that has a lot of very smart, extremely motivated people working on it even more now, but essentially missed the dynamic that the climate had already changed, was continuing to change, and that most likely the emissions path was not going to bend in a meaningful way in the next five years, maybe 10 years. And there were a whole set of practical implications of that, that almost no one was thinking about, and that decision makers didn't have easy to use scalable tools for understanding these impacts, like with every other kind of enterprise risk management that exists. Did you just happen upon this information or were you exploring it as a thesis? What turned you on to this area in the first place? It's a great question. It was an almost magical confluence of events. So as I mentioned, I was interested intellectually in what was going on from a climate change perspective. I'm a data and analytics guy, and it's one of the most interesting sort of data analytics science questions you can have. Secondly, more because of my business and technology background, I'd gotten involved in a company doing aerial methane detection, which methane emissions are one of the key drivers of climate change. And as a result was you know, essentially working in the space, not around physical risk, but around climate change more generally. And I also was doing some work related to NOAA policy more generally, because I had a prior company that was in the weather space. And so all of these things kind of came together and I was thinking about what to do next. And I had an aha moment along with some of my colleagues of there's something here in climate change impacts. And at the time I was looking at three or four other business opportunities, some that were related to prior work in weather, other co-founders that I'd worked with before, we were collectively kind of going through these ideas and saying which one is sort of the most interesting from a economic opportunity, intellectual, and social impact perspective. And each one of the three sort of scored differently, but the physical impact of climate change very clearly we thought was socially transformative. We could have a big positive impact on the world and was ultimately going to be a giant business. And we liken what we're doing to cybersecurity 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, people really were saying, you know, cybersecurity, what's that? Why does it matter? 10 years later, everyone on the planet 
knows it's important and is paying significant amount of money for solutions around cybersecurity. Three years ago, when we first were starting the company, we said physical climate risk is going to be important. And most people we talked to said, maybe, probably not for us. And we had some visionary investors that saw that where the world was going. Beginning of 2020, I don't think there's any serious business person on the planet that would say physical risk from climate change isn't an important thing to understand. Now what everyone is focusing on is, okay, well, what does it really mean for our business? How do we tactically integrate this in to our decision-making and who should we work with as our partner in the Avos constant theme in January of 2020, physical risk is important. I got to tell you, December last year, like literally 45 days ago, as I was doing business planning for 2020, I was like, I think it's going to happen in 2020, but we have to be prepared for it's going to be more slow and it might be 2021. It was like people came back from vacation. I realized I'm a little off your question, what's the origin story? But literally, it's like people came back from winter vacations at the beginning of this year and said, climate change is top of our list. We've talked about the problem space that you're going after and how you got to going after that problem space. But once you had that aha moment, which, of course, was the culmination of many other incremental aha moments to get to that point, but once you put those pieces together... How did you go from that to where you are now? And where did you start? And what were kind of the steps in 30 seconds or less? Just kidding about the last part. From the aha moment, the first thing we needed to do was raise money so we could build a team, so we could build products, so we could sell. So pre-product, the vision and track record of the team, you raise money. Yeah. I mean, we raised a remarkable amount of money just on the concept in the team. It was $10 million. took us about a month to raise from the time we started. So that went very well. And then we recruited the team. And I think the intersection of who the founders were, not me, but you know some of the other people from a science and technology perspective, the importance of the issue, the fact that by the time we raised money, there was a new president and the federal government was effectively investing from this area. And just the importance of the issue allowed us to attract some of the very, very top people in the world fairly quickly. And then, you know, even before we knew what we were building, we said, well, well, let's go out and talk to potential customers. And we'd done a certain amount of this before we'd raised money, but now it was like, there's a real company, there's people, there's $10 million of product development that's underway and very different substantive conversations. And We talked to different sectors. We talked about different perils like flood and fire and wind and extreme heat. And in 2017, the only folks that were really spending money were big cities, at least in the United States. And we didn't have the scale to kind of tackle Europe or the rest of the world at that point. And so we cut our teeth with our work with New York and Miami and then the federal rebuild by design program, which is part of HUD. And that, plus the ongoing development work, established the credibility to then start working with the enterprise market as they 
started thinking seriously about these issues. And the other part of that first few months was which peril. And it became pretty clear quickly that flood was what most people were focused on. We had conversations in California, and they said, if it's not earthquake or maybe fire, we don't care in the same way that the Atlantic coast region cared a lot about flood and wind, more so flood at the time. And so we got pretty quickly focused on flood. And only about three months after we were funded, we'd already been building kind of the core foundation that was peril independent, right? There's a bunch of things that we needed to do. It really didn't matter who the customer was or which peril we did first, but within three months of funding, we had decided on flood. And I remember there's a set of a key group of us in May of 2017. We just come back from meetings with New York City and a number of other for-profit and public sector entities said, it's going to be flood. And we literally spec'd out the first version of our flood service on a napkin at Zerbes Kitchen. So we literally spec'd out the first version of the flood product on a paper napkin at Zerbes Kitchen after a couple of days of meetings with potential customers. When you're doing flood forecasting, flood planning, or, or any peril for that matter, where does the data come from and how much of it is known? The data comes from a combination of sources. Let me explain the architecture of what we do first, and then I'll come back to the data question. So we're predicting on a probabilistic basis the impact of range of perils starting with flood. Now we've got a pretty good set of perils that we deliver to customers for a specific location, like literally down to one meter spatial resolution. and. To do that well, you need the current and future state of the weather, the current and future state of the terrain, and then a peril model that takes those two sets of inputs and turns it into a simulation of the peril through time. So the building blocks are downscaling the climate models, which we do ourselves. These are the global climate models that primarily are available from about a dozen national labs all over the world, and then downscaling that information for planetary scale to specific regional scale, and then translating that from the future state of the atmosphere to the future state of the weather. And we're the best in the world at doing that at scale. Prior to Jupiter, people would do that kind of on a one-off basis as a boutique exercise, we now have a whole set of processes for doing that. And then essentially have a digital model of an area that also includes the terrain information, like how high is the surface in each location? What's the subsurface drainage? Is it concrete or is it marshland? And that data also is generally available, but we have a whole set of techniques for on an automated basis, including AI, which is also part of our downscaling of the climate models, essentially improving the data quality of the the terrain maps. Then we have a peril model. Think of it as a 3D simulation 
of the dynamics of the peril. So for flood, it's the hydrodynamics of the weather tells you where the water starts, but the hydrodynamics tell you where it goes and how much of it goes where. And the weather is both the storm surge pushing water onshore, typically from the ocean, or could be river, and then the precipitation, both at the location that you care about, as well as upriver from that. For something like fire, the things that matter are the atmospheric factors, both today and in the future, of temperature, wind, precipitation, humidity, but then also the terrain factors, like how much accumulated fuel is there and how close do people live to flammable areas. One of my favorite acronyms of all time is the WUI, Woodland Urban Interface, which is basically how close do people live to the forest and in what kind of population density, which is has nothing to do with climate, has nothing to do with atmospheric science, but is one of the single most important factors in the likelihood of a fire starting. And then there's fire spread models. Things like wind matter a lot, but also just data on what does the forest look like. So there's a tremendous amount of data of lots of different types that go into what we're doing. I've just barely scratched the surface. And sometimes from the public sector, sometimes from proprietary sources that we commission, sometimes from commercial data providers, including the satellite providers. We're currently using aerial observations from light aircraft. We're very bullish on, as drones get more range, drone inputs. But for a lot of what we do, we need to cover a large enough territory that drones are not cost competitive with something like a Cessna. But for very small areas, we're using drone data as well. What does the customer base look like in terms of the size of that base and also how it's allocated by sector? Conceptually, we touch every place everywhere on the planet, and that's the owners of the asset, the insurers of the asset, the lenders to the asset, the operating companies that run the business that might have shareholders like a big pension fund or asset manager, as well as the host domiciles that are responsible for health and safety of their population, and then also just being an attractive market for employers. So we literally touch everything. And that's a gigantic, multi-billion, ultimately trillion-dollar opportunity. In terms of where people are buying today, the biggest sector for us today, and I think this is true for the market in general, is owners of very expensive, mission-critical infrastructure that's vulnerable to natural hazards and long-lived. So that's things like power plants, manufacturing facilities, refineries, ports. You know, these are oftentimes multi-billion dollar individual facilities that are owned by entities that have dozens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of these facilities all over the planet. And that's our biggest sector today. And we're in that sector, we're working with engineering, capital planning, risk management, a little bit of shareholder disclosure, but real world business decisions that are independent of the risk class, that they're used to thinking about risks over the time horizon of 
their operating assets. And this is just another risk. And one of the big things that Jupiter says to our customers is, look, put aside any of the politics and media attention to this issue. And just think about it like a business risk, any other business risk you have in your company that you can't ignore and assess it based on its relative importance from a business impact perspective. And based on that, give it the appropriate management attention and capital that it deserves relative to any other business risk. And any company that thinks about it that way is going to allocate resources to dealing, to understanding and dealing with this risk because it's too big an issue to ignore. And then our second biggest sector is financial services, mortgages, asset management, and insurance. And then public sector, big, important, but has shrunk as a percentage of our business, basically for two reasons. One, the commercial market has just gone from zero to 100 over the last three years. And two, public sector is subject to budget and procurement pressures that are much harder to navigate for those decision makers than private sector entities. And the fundamental reality is in most places of the world, taxpayers don't want to pay the real costs of the impacts of climate change. And that's true for consumers as well. There's only now growing groundswell beyond just kind of innovators and early adopters among consumers to, you know what, I'll pay a little bit more for my product so that it's used producing materials and power that emit less. But most consumers, the vast majority of consumers, are not ready to do that. And one of the huge challenges in places like Florida is taxpayers, by and large, don't want to pay for it either. They're perfectly happy for the federal government to step in and say, yeah, we'll cover it, or the National Flood Insurance Program will subsidize the risk. But they don't want to pay higher prices for insurance. They don't want to spend $100 billion of city and state money for infrastructure that ultimately, in places like Florida, have to get spent. I may have missed it, but I don't think I heard in one of your customer verticals the insurance companies. So where do they sit in terms of all this? Are they doing it in-house or how do they think about the kinds of things that you guys do? Yeah, I would say to a very large extent for insurance companies today, this is a marketing issue and a niche business. And the fundamental reality for that is something that the business world is increasingly coming to understand, which is duration mismatch. So insurance gets repriced, in some cases, approved or disallowed every year. And so the insurance companies don't really hold this risk. People think that they hold this risk, but they don't. They hold it in a given year. And as the risks go up, which we know they are, they can just increase their prices. Or maybe the regulators won't let them increase their prices. And then you see catastrophic impacts for communities like in California, where the insurance providers are trying to pull out a fire insurance in California because the regulators won't let them charge the true cost of the risk. That's going to have to play out. And ultimately, I think the California state government will be subsidizing an awful lot of fire insurance, like the U.S. federal government subsidizes an awful lot of flood insurance. 
But I guess the confusing thing for me, though, is if they come up every year and need to make this decision on an annual basis, then when they go to make that decision, why isn't something like a Jupiter informing their models? Who's making the decision? On whether they continue to insure those homes, for example? Remember, this is a slow-moving risk. So over five and 10 years, it matters a lot to them from a business perspective. But in the short term, it matters a lot more to a mortgage holder that you know, average duration. So they're lagging. The insurance companies are lagging. It's just if they have a year that's too much in the red, then they'll change it. They go by the dollars and not the catastrophe data. And the regulators won't let them change their prices yet either. So there's a crisis coming in insurance that is going to have to get resolved, but it's very easy in the short term, absent some catastrophic event like fires in California and Australia, for them to just say, okay, well, we'll get to it. So where are we just as a, I mean, this is such a hard question. I was going to say, where are we as a species in terms of adaptation and resilience, but it's very hard to ask that when you compare like the West to developing countries to, I mean, it's just so different in different parts of the world. But there is actually a very general answer to that, which is the vast majority of the world is just waking up to how soon these impacts are relevant and how much money they need to spend to adapt to the new atmosphere. And that's true everywhere. So in your view, and I mean, you guys make money either way. If you get really good at this, it's going to be valuable to somebody. So I guess putting you guys aside for a moment, who should bear the brunt of this? Should it be like, I've heard certain arguments from people that in order to get the markets to move, people and companies need to feel real pain and that that pain will actually be a catalyst to help accelerate the transition that we so desperately need. Is it on Joe Consumer? Is it up to the government to step in with government thick and increase everybody's taxes? Like, how do we do this? Just to be clear, are you talking about physical risk or emissions? So there's a general climate thing, but I think for the purposes of my question here, I'm talking about resiliency of infrastructure. I think the view that you just described attributed to other people Uh is slightly out of date. It was true six months ago, 12 months ago, two years ago. I jokingly commented earlier in the interview that it's like people came back from their winter holidays and said, this is the year of climate. McKinsey published a really high quality report on this issue in January. BlackRock published a whole set of policy directions on this in January. The World Economic Forum identified, based on their own surveys, not their own opinion, this is a top issue for the enterprise market. And I think 2020 really is the year where the enterprise market, out of pure self-interest and demands from their stakeholders in the developed world, starts to take these issues seriously, regardless of consumer pressure. Which piece of the view that I had mentioned is outdated? And I'm not questioning that. I just want to understand to make sure I have the context right. That it's ultimately going to require consumer or voter pressure. I thought that's what I heard you say. So I had someone on who's got a hedge fund that is essentially offering a short position on big residential real estate holdings in areas that have not properly factored in climate risk. And he stated in our episode that in order to get the markets to move at the pace that they need to move, that it's going to be painful and that that pain in an unfortunate way is actually healthy. Well, I think everyone likes to think they're the lever. We don't think we're a lever. We think we're 
a way to manage once people have come to the realization that they have this issue. And we like lots of levers. But I think the stakeholder pressure is going to drive and really depends on who you're talking about. And we haven't even gotten to the public sector yet, which I'll come back to in a moment. But I think in the enterprise market, the big companies with big assets, they're not going to get moved by getting trade against. They're going to move based on the ROI, the shareholder impact, and CEOs getting indicted. So there's one bankruptcy, PG&A, and then there's two CEOs of global 2000 companies who have been indicted for environmental or climate-related issues, being negligent on these issues. That gets a lot of attention. I think we're going to see more of that. And it will be impossible to wave these risks aside from a corporate governance perspective across shareholder demands, employee demands, reputational effect, and management and board liability. Now, in financial services... I haven't yet seen a trade against an insurance port company. That would certainly get people's attention. Somebody figured that trade. Mortgages, there's a lot of reason to believe that there's going to be trading against mortgage portfolios. Some folks are working with Jupiter Data. They recently published on this that there's adverse selection by the government, the GSEs like Freddie Mac and others like that, where the banks are essentially selling the mortgages with the highest weather and climate risk to the GSEs. And taxpayers are bearing an undue share of that risk. That's something the reinsurance industry needs to be paying attention to as well, more so than they are now. Then there's the public sector. And the public sector is entirely driven by voter support for various different measures. and. I think, unfortunately, some of these economic impacts are going to come home to roost faster than the public sector can respond in most parts of the world because of voter sentiment issues. So when you look at where we are and where we need to be, I've heard from you that the symptoms are going to get worse and that will lead to indictments or people getting fired or lawsuits or things like that, and that it will lead to an awakening of the private sector out of self-interest to make sure that they're protected. Is that it? And the market will kind of take care of itself or are there other levers that you think would help accelerate this transition effectively? There's this concept in geopolitics, armed lifeboat diplomacy, which the United States in some respects seems to be following, which is wall yourself off, keep everyone out and protect your own assets and the rest of the world can take care of itself. That is a very scary world and something to be avoided if we can. And I don't think the private sector on its own really has enough scale to invest in all the resilience measures that are going to be needed. And the public sector is going to have to play a very big and important role. And ultimately, that will come down the voter sentiment. So saying economic self-interest is sufficient and that's it, I think is a very, leads us to a very Mad Max-like world. So I wouldn't say that's it by any means. And it also results in kind of a Darwinian regional competition where countries and regions do a good job, the attractive areas for ongoing 
investments in infrastructure of all kinds, and knowledge workers too. Knowledge workers are mobile. They go where it's attractive to work, and, and floods and fires make places like Sydney awfully unattractive for knowledge workers. So I think some regions and some countries are going to get this right. They will be big winners. Capital and knowledge workers will go to those areas. And other regions that can't get their act together will be major losers over the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, I know you have a fiduciary responsibility as the CEO of a company that's raised external financing and it has a bunch of employees and mouths to feed, et cetera, to go where the money is. But one of the things that I personally wrestle with as I've been on this journey is the issue of environmental justice, where the folks with the money can take the steps to protect themselves and their assets, but the folks that are most vulnerable are oftentimes in the places that are also going to be first affected or are already the first affected by some of the perils that come with the changing climate. So not rich the CEO, but just rich the human. How do you think about that topic? First of all, this is an extraordinarily important topic. I'm going to come back in a moment, but I disagree with the way you look at the company, just from a pure, you know, sort of your profit perspective. So we've now invested over $25 million in reusable services that are equally valuable to NGOs and small cities and countries as they are to big companies. And in order to continue to invest, we have to show a profit and be responsible stewards of our capital. And the revenue for that is gonna come from large corporates and maybe the top 10 or 15 countries on the planet. So we have to do that well, but just because we have to do that well, doesn't mean that it's the only thing that we do well. And so we have, from the very beginning, we've had a nonprofit or break-even component to our business. Our public sector work is typically not very profitable, at least at the municipal level. But we're able to do that because most of the R&D is already covered by the revenue coming from our for-profit companies. And we have, as a deliberate policy, a nonprofit work where, quite frankly, we'd like to be doing more of it But every time I say we have room to provide nonprofit services, there's a lot less interest in that than we're getting on the commercial side. And I think it's partially because nonprofits don't really yet know how to work with a company like ours as we're continuing to mature. But we are doing a certain amount of nonprofit work. We will continue to do so. And in the meantime, we're working with other partners. We helped publish a paper on climate gentrification in South Florida that was based on a combination of economic data from our partner and the risk data from us. It's a crucially important issue. And, you know, if you're a steward of a for-profit company, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that we're not doing a good enough job collectively. I'm not saying Jupiter specifically, but collectively, We're not doing a good enough job to maintain support of voters in advanced democracies for the capitalist system. And that's got to change. A lot of people see that's got to change, whether that's around wealth inequities or disparate impacts of climate risks. 
because the capitalist system is, I'm going to get very philosophical here, but it's fundamentally grounded in a set of economic views that require that the stewards of capital are doing the best possible job. And if we're not, things will change. And you can go all the way back to John Locke and what way that he wrote about this, see the government underpinnings of the capitalist system. And so in order to help that narrative and maybe build bridges with some of the resentment, what's the issue? Is that resentment valid? And if so, what is it that's broken and how do we fix it? In the capitalist system generally? or Yeah, in the capitalist system generally. Well, I mean, clearly there's too much wealth and equity. And then beyond that, the system is not responding to a whole set of risks that exist, that impact the population. Voters will not continue to support a system that's solely producing billionaires or not addressing general needs of the population, including their vulnerability to these climate risks and, and impacts. So what changes do you think we could make to the system to offer outcomes that are more widely distributed? You know, I'm happy to talk about that another time. I think that's a bit outside the scope of of Jupiter. I like to focus on the issues related to climate change. And clearly, the planet needs a global agreement on addressing emissions. And clearly, there needs to be more spending on resilience at all levels of the system that takes into account the future risks to all of these assets and where people live. Like if you have a road that floods, you can't evacuate in the case of a natural disaster. That's a problem. And the United States and most of the developed world is building roads without any regard to what the flood risk looks like 10 years from now for a road that's going to be there forever. Maybe not forever, but for most people's lifetimes. The policy of the U.S. federal government around this is literally insane. So if you had $100 billion, whether you're the government or your big brother looking down on the government, whatever it is, and you could allocate it towards anything to help accelerate this transition effectively. And I guess typically when I ask this, I ask it about the clean energy transition and addressing climate change overall, but you can actually take this either way you like. You can take that one or you can take around getting our infrastructure resilient and protected to minimize the suffering from the change that's already built in. So I'll kind of leave that to you, but pick one of those and tell me how you'd allocate the money if you had it. First of all, $100 billion is not nearly enough, unfortunately. People are just coming to understand that. And let me sort of tick through the things that I would address. One, the country's approach to risk and subsidizing high-risk areas where people live and continue to build is crazy. We should fix that. There's a tremendous amount of voter resistance to that. Two, we're going to have to pick regions where we harden and areas where there's managed retreat. Voters hate that too. Three, we absolutely should require that any new spending of long-lived assets factors in not today's vulnerability, but the vulnerability in the life of that asset. In either a stair-step method, which says we're going to build this in such a way that the incremental cost of hardening it down the line when the risks hit 
is much lower because we thought it through in advance, or we're just gonna build it to anticipate those risks in the first place, but we're not gonna ignore those risks. I think that's three I'm up to. Four, regulated industries that don't account for future risk around things like rate bases for power or the setting of in private insurance rates have got to account for future risk in ways that regulators are very resistant to today. Again, voters don't want to pay more. So that's, that's a handful of things. They're all politically undesirable, but ultimately voters are going to have to support them or we're just going to ignore these risks. And what about for the people that are listening to the pod, they tend to be people that, I mean, one, they're voters, but outside of voting, they're also people that are serious about trying to either actively working to address these issues, whether it's emissions reduction or carbon removal or adaptation, resiliency, et cetera, or people that are looking to reorient themselves and focus on these at the systems level in their next chapter. So I guess speaking to them for a moment, what advice do you have for them in terms of how to go about finding their lane and how to be most impactful towards addressing whichever piece of the problem they feel like they're best equipped to do so? It's a great and really important question. I'm going to start by talking about Jupiter just for a second. Hopefully see why in a moment. When we started the company and we went to businesses and said, you should be thinking about these risks. A lot of people said to us, well, but we don't even know how. What would we even do? What are the tools that are available? And candidly, before we launched our first services, we were like, well, there aren't really a lot of services, but they're coming and you should buy them when they come. And obviously there was a certain amount of self-interest in that. But I was very sympathetic to the folks that I was trying to sell to because even where they said, hey, yeah, you're right, we think there's an issue and we should do something differently, they were hamstrung because they didn't have the tools to do something differently. And I think voters and consumers face a similar challenge now. So there's a lot of noise around what people believe and what they say they're going to do around climate change. And there's a little bit of a Goldilocks problem of some people say we should just get rid of the capitalist system or the worst aspects of the capitalist system and we can't address climate change unless we do that. And other people say, no, we should approach this just like any other issue, but give it the priority that it deserves. So even in that, there's a lot of noise that voters are still sifting through. But I think the number one issue for voters is they're going to have to pay more. They're going to have to suck it up with things that are unpleasant and not exactly what they want tomorrow if they want to be prepared for a better future. For consumers, I think it's a different story. There are a lot of consumers that will say, look, I want to behave as a consumer in an environmentally responsible way. It's just hard to know what that means. There's some big obvious things, but look, the vast majority of what American consumers buy has a production component in countries, including China, especially China, where the vast majority of the emissions are coming from. And yet we continue to buy those products. So I think until there's a robust analytics around how much emissions is actually in the sweater that you're wearing right there, do you know, right? 
where it was produced, how it was produced, what the energy source was for it, what the environmental standards around the raw components for producing that sweater were. If you don't know any of that, do you? I don't. No. And what about one stakeholder group that you didn't mention, which is actually the one that probably has the biggest percentage of listeners, is aspiring founders. So if people want to follow in your footsteps and find a lane where they can do well while doing good towards some aspect of this problem, what advice do you have for them? Just in this issue that we were talking about now, I think there's a big opportunity for someone to do a much more sophisticated job of what's the emissions content of every single product that consumers buy and how good. And there's some work being done in ESJ around how responsible the companies are. But I think ultimately there's a lot of power in consumers that are informed and not just making kind of feel good decisions. Rich, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? This is a huge, monumentally important problem. We're not doing a good job of it. We collectively as a species are not doing a good job now, but the opportunity to get it right across all of these dimensions, consumers, voters, companies, national policy, geopolitical agreements on a global basis is still very much in front of us. And there are enormously important issues. And, and I would encourage all of your listeners, whether they're entrepreneurs or not, to think about what they can do in the various different dimensions of their lives and look for ways to do things better. Great. Well, thank you for all of the work that you do. And thanks for making the time to come on and share it with all of us. My pleasure. And similarly, thank you for telling both our story and everyone else's story in this colossally important area. And feel free to have me back anytime. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.